uh, I'm going to go through the intro and then, oh, by the way, you two do not be mad. I did not put out an episode this week because I was completely overwhelmed. I'm so sorry. Okay. Now we're just going to start. <laughs> that was clearly strategically placed. There's no way you just remembered that. I have to admit, I didn't notice, which is really So shut up. Wow. <laughs> Who doesn't listen to the podcast, Jason? <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. <laughs> Hello. I'm going to try to compensate. <laughs> do that. Hey, Trisha, are you okay? <laughs> Saturday morning may not be the ideal time to tape because I actually did not sleep very well. Oh no! I've been up since six, and then you know federal loss, which means that means I'm going to be in a bad mood. Period. Oh, get so, ready, listeners. I'll be snappier than I normally am in general. Oh, God, this but is, um, I missed miss this. I don't understand. What? I, what did you say? Federal law? What? Federa. <laughs> Federa. You remember? She likes tennis. Oh, remember? Oh, okay. No, but I, I, I couldn't fall asleep. I woke up at like four a.m. But that's because I start nodding off at about ten. So I was like, okay, that's a pretty good amount of sleep. I was just like, and I was like, but 4 a.m., it's still too early. I need to just do some stuff. So I putzed around a little bit. And then I looked and I was like, 6 a.m., I guess I'm up for this freaking Federer match then. I better watch it live. Watched it live, watched him lose. And now we're recording. And so I'm very, (laughs) very good. Great. So to, to recap, you didn't get any sleep. You watched your favorite lose, and now you're talking to us. Great. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. Great. It's going to be great. <laughs> Jason, we're doing all the heavy lifting this episode. So what's up with you? That's just, wow. I'm going to be especially sunshine. I, I'm feeling good. I actually got a really good night's sleep. I didn't watch any athletes that I like. Take that, lose. Trisha. I feel, I feel really good. Well, speaking of athletes, actually, do you all saw the news that Kaepernick is going to get a chance yeah. to perform of some sort today? <laughs> yeah, perform? Yeah, but no, he's actually, getting a chance. It's a workout that the it's teams a workout, get to watch. But it's, but it's actually all really sort of shoddy. Apparently, usually these workouts take place on Tuesdays. And they usually have head coaches and pretty high up staff to watch these performances so that you can actually make a real choice. Time out. What are you talking about? Like, what performance? What, what, what it's a workout? Work, it's a workout. Like a workout video? No, no, they're considering. No, no, no. They're considering. When you're considering offering a slot to someone, you, let, you, you, you host a workout so you could see what they're capable of doing. So there's and a chance he's going to get a job back into NFL. It'd be, it's like an audition tape, but it's live. Yes. But the thing that's weird about it normally happens during the weekday. And apparently Tuesday is the day, though, when that happens. And then there's usually more people from um, higher up that are able to make an event such as that so that you really feel that it's a real opportunity. However, this event was announced on a Saturday. There were supposedly not going to be a lot of head coaches there or anyone that was in a position to make a decision. So what are you saying? Like, this is a fake out? 
it seems i mean that i think the way that it's playing at least on my social media feed from sports journalists and folks is that and activists is that it's really just the nfl's attempt to kind of change the storyline that maybe colin kaepernick is actually just not a good quarterback and we're going to give him an opportunity to demonstrate that he isn't but they're creating an environment that's entirely unusual. Who thought that he wasn't a good quarterback? I think we all are aware he's not working because of all the other stuff, right? You, well, you'd be surprised. I, I, you'd well, be surprised. But I think Sports there are a lot of fact, factors yeah. here. I mean, I heard an interview with Mike Pesca, who I who? do think so. Mike Pesca um, is a sports journalist. He and he has a daily podcast uh, on Slate called The Gist. I don't really like his podcast, and I'm not a sports fan, but I actually do find his analysis really interesting. He's a really smart guy. So anyway, he was talking about this, and you know, he, this is what he said. He was like, there were times when Kaepernick was a great quarterback and times he wasn't as great. The biggest concern is he hasn't played for two years. Yeah. So a lot of coaches are very skeptical about whether he's still good. I think to what Trisha was saying, no one quite knows why this is happening. It could be just a publicity thing, like she said. It could be that it was part of the secret settlement that no one knows was in, right, with the NFL, where maybe they said, okay, part of it was they're going to give him a shot. Pesca was, said that there's been speculation maybe this was like a Jay-Z, like part no, of the Jay-Z. they're trying to make it a Jay-Z thing because they're, tr- they're still trying to give Jay-Z cover for his decision. So people are float have floated that idea that this is something Jay-Z negotiated, yeah. um, which would explain why it's a dodgy event on a Saturday. But <laughs> I feel I feel really dense and unprepared for this conversation because this is what <laughs> this is what I'm understanding, right? Colin Krapenick is working out live in front of a bunch of people who may or may not be decision makers for the NFL in a publicity stunt that is not going to advance his career because it's so unusually scheduled? Is that what I understand? That's one of the takes. Yeah, that's um, one, of the one of the takes is that it's not a good faith effort. The assumption that it was potentially, it's interesting that your um, your person said it was a settlement, a, p- a potential part of his settlement because Colin Kaepernick was was actually caught unawares that this was something that well, happened. Only I said that, sorry. Yeah, oh, okay, no, yeah. not the, okay, yeah. So I don't think it was a part of any, any settlement. The whole thing is sort of playing very strangely. The reason why it came up is because prior to getting on this podcast, I happened to be scrolling my newsfeed and I saw signs. 4 a.m., yeah. Yes, and I saw signs of people waiting for Colin Kaepernick to arrive. And you would imagine that there would be signs pro and con. So the assumption that Colin Kaepernick, but to Chris's point that he was a good quarterback, that's up in the air now. Because you know your goodness in your job is really based for some people on how politically viable you are to them. So now people say, well, the reason why he's not playing is not because of anything, any position he's taken. It's because he was just never a good quarterback. So it's not a given. Um, He was good at his job for some. It does make me wonder, like, even let's say he's amazing, like today. No one wanted to hire him because they didn't want the negative publicity because he was kneeling, right? So, like, what happens then? Are, are they have they gotten over that? And they think that's you know that's not going to be a problem anymore. Or are they going to like try to sign a contract with him where he promises not like that's that's the part I don't understand. Like, also, not for nothing that all that all that hullabaloo was three years ago. As as far as news cycles go, is this still something that people are motivated so. for? One very really? like very the NFL much. audience. I mean, I think what's interesting about any of this really is the confusion around it, first and foremost, whether it's a real or, or, or um, not real thing. That's a really strange, that's strange, right? If you're trying to clean up a mess, creating this level of confusion doesn't help. You know, It's, they, it's probably yeah. real then. Occam's razor. It's probably a real thing. 
that they set okay. up for That's people to watch. They don't have to. They don't have to hire them, but it's probably but a gonna, real workout. They're going to give the appearance of giving him a shot. But it's I mean, a real shot. But we'll never know. What well, if he just exactly. maybe he's not up to snuff? Maybe two years he's he's not where everyone else is, and he just doesn't get the job. There's no winning here, honestly. Like if if they set it up to be a smokescreen, there's no winning there because well, either they someone has to agree to give him the job, or he doesn't get the job because maybe he isn't good anymore, and they're still going to look like shitheads. Like well, this has got to be real. No, I don't yeah, know. I'm I think it could, sports. Look at me. I, Go ahead. I think it could be what Trisha said. It definitely could be. You know, they fully expect because he's older than the average quarterback and he hasn't played in two years that there's no way he's going to look that good. And that will give them that will make it easier to put it to bed versus I mean, I wonder if he does amazing. And I don't know enough to know what that looks like um, in a like workout with one person. But if he does amazing, then then that is going to feed the story. And then they don't hire him. Right. That's going to really feed the story like, oh, um, but nothing yeah. feeds this story, right? Nothing is going to, it's like Chris says, nothing's going to cause this to work out well. Because yeah, they, for the NFL. Be on, no, because to be honest, they have they have chosen stringers instead of going to him. They've chosen people who were just like him in some ways, not played a long time, <laughs> unfit. I, I guess the storyline needs to end. So there, this is an attempt. To I, I can't, I, you know what? <laughs> I don't know a lot about marketing. We need to have Udita back because, like, I don't understand what the message would be here if this was just a smokescreen. It gives them cover not to hire him. I guess I hear what you two are saying, but it's still they still come up smelling badly. I think they continue to be a complicated organization as ever. I think the people who were pro NFL before will not be shifted in one way or the other, and I think the people who were who thought that Cap was unfairly targeted and not given an opportunity to do what he does best at work is um, I don't think they are going to be swayed by any of the outcomes. Because you're right. You've basically prevented someone from doing what they do well, which is a physical activity for three years. There will be costs to that. Nobody what wins. You, what you just said, Tricia, I feel like is the bottom line of everything going on in our country. The people who feel one way about it will not be swayed. And the pe- everything becomes how do you motivate people to do something you want them to do, not how do you change their mind, because nobody's minds are changed. I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, like I, I was looking at different people's point of view about this, and it was so clear that it's just really hard to move people from one point to the next like once you've decided that facts aren't a thing for you like if i tell you that raising taxes is going to help make a b c d e happen and you can get uh, a group to say no and you can get another group to say yes i don't know how people make choices in that world you gotta flip a coin (laughs) you can't figure it you can't figure it out anymore and the internet is making things worse. What was it the other day? I had a question and I realized I couldn't Google it because there was no way. Oh, right. I wanted to find out how to clean up mildew in my bathroom, right? Okay. Too much information. Well, okay. First of all, (laughs) shut up. Let me see your bathroom. So I Googled it and there was this woman with this video and she said like using bleach and rags and like these chemicals and like these products, it was like magically erased it, right? So I was like, great, great. So I looked at the comments and a whole bunch of people said, oh no, this is exactly what you should not do because it will release toxic fumes and you'll die and your children and your neighbor's children will have cancer. (laughs) So then I was like, oh shit, that's true. So I started Googling it. So as you can imagine, there's entire different subsets of the internet dedicated to one of those two ideas and they're they're absolutely balanced. Except 
but I don't, I don't <laughs> know enough. Balance, right, that's the problem. <laughs> but the thing is, I don't know enough reading one site to the next to know who's right, and I'm not willing to try. And I was like, it's incredible. There's no way for me to get more information. You're like, I'm going to live with mildew in my bathroom. That's the end of the story. You said you wanted to eliminate mildew. You didn't talk about whether you wanted to be healthy after. (laughs) (laughs) Trade-offs. Are you willing to die to get the mildew off? That's all. These are the parameters that gets introduced online. Are you being for real right now? No, I'm serious. I'm just saying, listen. Did bleach eliminate the mildew? It does. Well, it'll be a chemical smell, all of that. But that was your signature question, right? But see, this is how the internet confuses so me. Now the internet's it's literal like, as hell. Like, it's like yeah. a monkey's paw. That's what you <laughs> That's what it does. It, the, you know how it is. I mean, there's so many bad faith arguments out there that it's just, and everyone's willing to throw up a straw man at every moment. So would you like to eliminate the mildew and have a chemical smell in the bathroom a few hours later. No. Okay. That's the choice you're making. You know what I mean? It's like, you can do it though, but they're just going to be challenges afterwards. That's I it. mean, I guess, <laughs> I, I guess I, I, you know, but cause people were saying, Oh no, the bleach gets into the walls and it fucks you up. And other people said, no, it absolutely does not do that. And I, it, you can't Google either. That's my point. Like, as far as trade-offs, I know that that exists too. Although Trisha, <laughs> so so I, I just I do want to just say that um, Chris, you and I texted about this. I I very well may be in New York City around Thanksgiving. Um, I was thinking maybe I'd stop by and hang out with you. But if we could hang out somewhere outside of your place in case I have to go to the bathroom, whether that be because I'm afraid of mildew or I'm afraid of being poisoned by your cleanser, let's meet in a a restaurant that hopefully first of all okay, i was about to say a restaurant but you know what buffalo wild wings just got in trouble because they someone died from a cleaning agent that they used in, in one of their restaurants that's not why yeah, they got yeah. in trouble <laughs> buffalo wild wings just got in trouble because some racist did you hear about this no a regular came into buffalo wild wings and they asked the staff to move some black people because they didn't want to be seated oh, yeah. by any black people <laughs> so Oh my god! It's not a good week for Buffalo Wild Wings. They're <laughs> killing people. They're back in the 1950s. They're feeding black people. Like you what, know what the hell was going on? When I heard of that story, and I didn't go too thoroughly because these stories are so upsetting. And, and also, like, it's like you get everything from the headline. Like someone was an asshole. It's got it. Yeah, because I'm like, who thinks that that's a good idea? Like, yes, you have your prejudice, and guess what? When you have it, you have to then go out into the world and just suck it up. I'm not saying to let those people into your house. That's your own, that's your own domain. Do what you want. But when you go into a public space, now you want to actually start controlling who's in your space. <laughs> I mean, not for nothing though. Like why people get to do that all the time. Like I just read an article about, you know, we have the most segregated school system in the country. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so the people do have expectations about who they're going to be with in but public. You- but you can't ask it out loud. What you have to do is just raise the prices so high that you basically <laughs> define. I love Trisha, Trisha's handbook on how to exclude there black you people you from public spaces. Offer <laughs> consulting services to white supremacists. I mean, listen, I, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not running. You a thought about like, this, Trisha? How no, can I'm not. Ru- listen, it's not even that I thought about it. It's just that when you go into certain spaces, you look around and you go, "Hmm, how did we achieve this?" <laughs> And you back into it. Hear that, racists? You can reach Trisha at. I better ride the Acela. You know, I better ride the first class Acela. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, the one thing I will say about us as black people is we know the value of a dollar. Some things are ridiculous. So you enter a space and you look around and it's mostly white people. You're like, mm, this probably isn't worth the cash. <laughs> I'm just saying that there are far better ways for you to exclude black people. <laughs> Trisha, okay. I'm cutting this part out. I know. Like, are you giving advice? I'm not giving advice. I mean, I'm not. You know, it's so interesting too, because I was thinking about this. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've experienced this, Chris. And Jason, you probably have too. Have you gone into a space that is not necessarily populated with a lot of black people? And they tell yes. you and they tell you exactly yes. And they tell you they want more black people. Oh. In the space. And then you're a black person in the space, but they but you can't tell them why there are not that many black people. Well, this is space. back to our race equity comment, right? right? Like organize it. Yes. That is so I, all the time. So then it's like your responsibility because you you're then they say you need to help us diversify yeah, the space. Can you get some of your black friends to come yeah. come here, yes, please? Right? And I'm Let like, me tell you a really quick story. I might have oh. mentioned this years ago on the podcast. Years ago in New York City, there's this Halloween party in the East Village. And they were really trying to get, they were like, we want a mixed, diverse crowd. Like they really were selling it in the invitation. Everyone's welcome, whatever. I show up to the party. It's me, like three other black people and 700 white people. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what the funny thing is? I knew it was gonna be like that when I got there by the tone and the tenor of all the invitations. I was just like, oh yeah, people of color are certainly not gonna respond to this. I knew it. But the thing is, the organizers didn't know it, and they were very disappointed. And I was like, well, obviously, this was going to happen. So you're right. But I'll go into consulting with you, Trish. I mean, I don't know if that's – I'm not offering it up. But I was just <laughs> – you know, I was just – I was contemplating it. I really was. I was thinking about the pressure that's often placed on um, folks of color in certain spaces to bring more along. But you yourself can't tell the people. Yeah, in they leadership position, they can't hear why yeah, the space isn't welcoming. You know, and then if you and a few people might have tried, and you see what happens, and you're like, well, it's not going to improve tomorrow. It's because it's part of its inertia. Part of it's just the inability to see. Like the organizers of that Halloween party, they were so disappointed. Like we tried so hard, and I'm like, yeah, but like as a person of color, I knew the deal. I knew that this was a party for white people. It just, but you can't see that the language and the imagery and the rest of it is calling to just people like you. I think you too should start a consulting shop and you can offer both ways. If you want more people of color, we can help you with messaging. If you want fewer, Trisha's got ideas about how to make sure there are none. (laughs) Not even. I don't know. You know what? I've actually been thinking a lot about this notion of consulting on things like that. I think there was an African-American woman who had agreed that she would come in and what was she going to, she was going to do Basically, she was haranguing Fortune 500 companies about their diversity. You know, I don't remember what the news event was, but there was some event in the news that highlighted the fact that uh, there wasn't a lot of diversity in Fortune 500 companies. Surprise, yeah. surprise. Yeah. And um, this enterprising black woman was like, I will be more than happy to come into your boardrooms and tell you things that you should already know in terms that are so easily available to you. And I'm going to charge you tens of thousands of dollars to do it. And so it was just diversity 101, and she made a killing. She had like a whole consulting company. But I wasn't thinking necessarily just about her. I was just thinking about, and I think we talked about this, just the mechanism. Because I was thinking about it even with the party idea. Like, I mean, that comes out of an authentic space, right? Like, people know where to show up. Everyone does. Everyone knows where um, to show up and feel comfortable. So if someone is not showing up at your space, 
it's not about marketing. It's not about any of these other kind of external things yeah. that people try to do. There's a reason why someone's not yeah. knocking on your door and coming. You got to in, look right? inside first about what's happening in the space before the messaging will help. I totally agree. Yeah, but I think oftentimes people spend a lot of time on messaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've been guilty of that because usually I'm in organizations where maybe I'm sometimes the the, the one or the yeah. two. Trisha, go get us some more people of color. <laughs> Trisha, why don't all the black people like us? Uh... Very tricky. No, it's tricky. <laughs> okay, so moving on, we're going to talk about our topic, which is about Generation Z. Trisha, can you talk a little bit about what we're talking about? A friend emailed me this article, which we are going to attach to the posting of this podcast. The article purports to make some claims about Generation Z, which was essentially was specifically within the workspace, which I thought was really intriguing. So Generation Z are folks that were born in 1997 and later. I don't even know who those people are. The 90s? I think it's the I think it's what year is it now? I think it's 1990, 2010 or 2009. It's like a 20 year period. They're the current. They're between 13 now. and 30 now, or something like that. 13 and 28. Let me just give you a, a good marker of the generations. The boomer generation is 1940 to 1959. Gen X is 1960 to 1979. Gen Y, millennials, which everyone tends to group millennials as kind of the global group for everyone younger than themselves, but the millennials are really distinct. Millennials are ones that were born in 1980 to 1994. And then Gen Z are folks that were born in 1995 to 2010. So we don't know what people who were born in 2011 are yet. <laughs> they have come up with a they, they're called Generation Gen Alpha. Alpha, Alpha yeah. which I don't, I don't know why oh, they're they called that. Oh, they started it all over again? Okay. So anyway, so the thing that struck me about Generation Z and the piece is that they said that Generation Z in many ways are seeking stability. They want to return to a nine to five job. They want a more predictable, sort of stable orientation to their life. And so I then raised the question on our little text exchange, like what impact will that sort of general orientation have for Gen Z more broadly and for the culture more broadly. Like in light of our last conversation, I wonder if that's the generation that we're rearing, which seems a little bit maybe almost like our parents' generation maybe in the sense of the stability and the nine to five and the the, mm. the yoking back to sort of like a traditional relationship with like an, even an employer. What does that say about maybe what the cultural practice might be, cultural practices of the future might be when this generation comes of age? What will they embrace? Does that traditional strain, at least at work, do you think that that might actually bleed out into other areas of their lives? This or is a no? big-ass question. It is. I'm just saying. Oh, big-ass question. Just, so we're I'm just doing general future casting. What is this generation going to be like in their, their work and social lives? Or is it related? Like, do we see a distinction arising, right? If they, if they favor this kind of a stability return or a traditional employer-employee relationship, how does that potentially impact any other kind of cultural touch points for them? Well, I want to say about the article, which was in Forbes, I, I took some issues with the article because it seemed to just talk to like just a couple of different uh, white affluent girls from what I could tell from the article about oh. their feelings about their future, which already it was so massively skewed. And they talked to the head of Visco, which is like this 
media sharing site, which I think is also proliferated by um, affluent white people. So I'll take all of this with a grain of salt. However, I, I mean, like the article details is that one of the reasons why stability might be attractive to this age group is because they've lived through a financial crisis and a recession. When they were young, they watched their parents lose their job, lose their savings, lose their house possibly, or hear tales about people who did in the culture. So I can see how they might be like, no, well, when I grow up, I want I want stability. Just like when I was growing up and I saw my dad waking up every morning and going to work and coming home like every day, like I craved the flexibility because I was like, <laughs> I don't want to live my life like this. Maybe we just keep going back and forth. I don't know. And when you ask like, what does this mean? Like, what are the implications? First of all, I don't think the coming generation will be like our parents' generation because just having a nine to five doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go back to like a boomer way of thinking. On top of that, like the the article details, and also I just know from working with young people, they still crave flexibility. They mm -hmm. still, it's like the me generation. They're still very much at the center of their universe. And I think that is going to change those nine to five office environments that they're entering into. Because this this generation is not interested in being in a cog in the wheel. They wouldn't be the shiny, glittery, everyone wants to be the shiny, glittery cog that is the linchpin to the entire machine. And so I think that's going to be interesting going forward. That, that article, it's, it's caused me to really think about the different trade-offs that get made as working conditions change. And I think the way I think about what you just said, Chris, is that, I mean, a nine-to-five stable job, there are lots of reasons why that can sound attractive, but you, you only keep that job if you're trading off the kind of flexibility. Like, you, it doesn't really work to have both. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I think for a, you know, one of the kids in that article interviewed was a kid in high school. For a kid in high school to say, well, I want a stable, you know, steady paycheck, stable nine-to-five job, but then to understand when you have that, you can't necessarily leave the office as much. You can't go to your kid's parent-teacher conference. You, you know, that 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 comes with trade-offs. What I'm struck by, and I definitely don't know the answer to this, but I, I do think you look over the past, whatever, many, many years, you see that workers have lost a lot of power in our industry, in, in our industries. You know, I think for all three of us, like we, we all, I think our work lives have involved a lot of flexibility. And, and we've been able to, that's been, you know, I think we all made that choice and we, we've been able to make that work. There are certainly lots of workers now that don't necessarily have that flexibility and, or if they do, they're, they're getting paid a lot less. I think about, you know, again, a generation or two ago, I mean, the things that were important to folks like pensions and stability and having a place to go to over many years, you know, we, we've lost a lot of that. And again, some of that was we didn't want to make commitments to a single employer for 30 years. But a lot of it has also been like employers have found ways to get productivity without without investing as much in things like pensions. And, and I just don't know where that's going to go. I mean, I, I think if the next generation is going to end up working much more nine to five than than our ge generation has is that going to come, does that going to mean they're going to get paid less? Is that going to be, they're working nine to five, but with fewer benefits than, you know, the baby boomers had? I, I don't know. I, I think thinking about work in the future, it's really murky to me. And, and, you know, we, we, uh, just to throw another thing in here, we, we know automation continues to just really disrupt industries and, and play, you know, industries where there were lots of jobs, there aren't as many anymore. And that, that's another thing. And, and, 
with automation, there's the opportunity to make life easier and better for everyone. But we know that the benefits aren't usually distributed equally. So again, if the if this Generation Z ends up, you know, working nine to five jobs, are they going to benefit from automation, or is it going to be something that keeps their wages low? These are just the different questions that come up for me when I when I see that information. Yeah, I mean, I think what's noteworthy about that is is the relationship, right? Because and Jason, I think to your point about what employers were willing to do and what they were willing to sacrifice and how they um, the choices that they've made for their workers um, in the sense that workers are losing out. I was just curious about sort of like the psychological impact of needing stability and then what those compromise points were. Because I think the search for stability will really allow people to compromise lots of things if that's what you want. Mm. You know, I think, um, yeah. does that does that mean that you are less likely to, to go away from home if that's what you want? You know what I mean? It's like, I think you, your choice points really shift if you're undergirthing um, need is stability versus flexibility. Yes. You know, yeah, and so absolutely. now you're actually, you're actually, but your willingness to engage in the world in a different way and to ask different things of the world really shifts from that point of view. Because as Chris is saying, when we grew up and we saw, I mean, we grew up seeing our parents making the stability choice. And for us, we're like, I don't know if I want to do that. And so we made choices accordingly, right? And we were willing to sort of go far away, do this, do that, you know, pick up different skills as you want. And I think for some people, the gig economy, while not great, it allowed them a sort of a sense of choice, a sense of of freedom. And I think, and a lot of people made those choices sort of... um, Knowing that, okay, well, you know what, I'm going to do with that insurance. And so um, employer, yes. employers felt comfortable not doing that. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> like you had a workforce that was willing to make certain kinds of choices. Um, I don't know. Is that a chicken or egg thing? You had a workforce that was willing to do that. And so therefore you can construct economies that made that, that, that took advantage of that. I was curious about, I, I just thought to myself, well, I wonder if you had a workforce that wanted something different. Would you retool your company to be reflective of that. It you'd have to. Yeah. I do think this generation and, and generation alpha coming I mean, generation alpha is like eight years old now, but I mean, <laughs> 10, 20 years from now, I think employers are going to have to appeal to workers sense of not necessarily their sense of community and like, um, you know, be part of this thing, but like pretty much not what can our company do for you, but what are you going to do for our company? In the sense that I think we they're going to have to empower individuals to make them feel special about the place that they work. Does that make sense? Well, it does. I, you know, what I'm struck by, I mean, you know, I've had a lot of experience now, you two probably have as well, being in the workforce with the people we call millennials, right? And, and there, I don't know if you've encountered this, but there are all of these stereotypes and some of them with, you know, grains of truth about how millennials operate in the workplace. And, you know, I've, I've been struck by, you know, one is around communication and we often blame this on technology, which may be, may be the right place to blame it, but the extent to which, you know, just communication is different. You know, I've, you know, I've mentored some millennials and given them feedback about, you know, when you're responding to someone, if you respond with like, you know, a dash and an emoji, like they may not think you're taking them very seriously. You know, like they're, mm-hmm. they're, you have to communicate differently with different audiences. That's one thing. And then the other, I mean, this is something, you know, again, I've heard lots of people complain about, I complained about is that 
um, how quickly some millennials I work with have expectations of promotion. Um, and like, okay, I've been doing this job for three months and I'm doing well, like, why am I not getting to the next level? And what I don't know is whether, and obviously these are all, everything we're talking about are generalizations. So there are lots of exceptions to all this, but if that, if those are some characteristics we're seeing in a lot of millennials more so than previous generations, I don't know as technology continues to ramp up, like is Gen Z going to be even worse at communicating and even more unrealistic. I mean, I think about some of the things you're saying, Chris, but like even, even more like I expect people to cater to me individually, or is it going to be a pendulum swing? And actually, no, they, they've had the technology at a time when we're learning how to use it better. And so they will communicate better. I don't know the answers to those things, but again, these are questions that, that come to mind. Well, it's interesting. I was looking at some of the research and the research is saying that like Gen Z because they came of age into it in the digital age, they don't make a distinction between the presence of a person in their life physically and out, which I think changes a lot of things. Mm. <laughs> so it's like um, they think of people in their community not so much based on location or geography. Makes sense. A little, yeah, a little bit more of an expansive idea. So you can, I mean, and you can also, but they're also in contrast to the Gen Y, they're more realistic. And so I think you can almost see a pattern emerging of a generation of people who actually do believe that there is going to need to be compromise. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if you put that package a little bit together. So it's just, it's, it's, but I mean, I think the noteworthy piece is sort of like, what are, what were the kind of, um, I guess, political and economic context in which you came of age and how did that color your picture of what is possible and also what you would like to have happen. And so just that article, just it was just a helpful contrast even for myself. Like if I thought about like we came of age, what, in the 90s? Honey, <laughs> stop lying to the people listening. <laughs> I'm I mean, still the, coming of age the, in the, the 90s. The tail, yeah, the tail 80s I'm still 90s, coming of age. Right? The, ta- the tail 80s and 90s. You're still coming of age, right? Sure. Coming of an age. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Coming of an age? <laughs> I mean, oh, I didn't have true. a conceptualization of the world really in the 90s. You know, I, I think now looking back, we're coming of age in it. And we came out of this very strange, like Reagan-esque period. But... um. Well, it's important. What's an important watershed for thinking about the world of work, the world of communication, and the social environment is definitely the digital age. The idea is that we existed, the three of us existed before a time when the internet and the digital age really crashed onto the scene. It crashed onto the scene when we were already adults. Uh, it became functional in our early 20s, and it be it became the grandfather of what we're using today sometime in our late 20s. And I think this generation here, this Gen Z, they've had cell phones since they were seven years old. Uh, they understand the technology, maybe not how to program it, right? But they yeah. definitely know how to use it. The end, they, they are the perfect end user of all of these apps and devices. And yeah. Generation Alpha, the ones who grew up and the ones who grew up in front of screens, like literally one, two years old in front of a screen. <laughs> yes, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know what they're gonna demand of their environments. It's, yeah. it's gonna be very, very interesting. Because... I think it's gonna be a retreat. Yeah, you know what? But I, I feel like historians, bad ones, no judgment, but I just, I feel like we 
often think about a retreat. And I think we always think the generation ahead of us is going to retreat. And I don't think that's a helpful way to think about it. There's no retreating. Like I said at the no, top. No, no, of no. Your... I don't mean retreatful. I don't mean like I don't mean Luddites. <laughs> no, not necessarily Luddites, no. but like I said at the top of this, like, yes, they may that Forbes article said that, oh, Gen Zers, they want a sort of stability. What I didn't like about that article is that it seemed to make the illusion that you ran with Trisha's like, oh, is it a return to what our parents were doing? I don't think stability means the same thing. They're they're craving they're craving an answer to the instability that they saw in the early part of this century. But like I said, because of their adeptness with technology, because of their issues with communication that Jason brought up, like the kind of stability they're seeking is going to be necessarily modified by those things. And sometimes I don't think I'm adroit enough to think what that might look like. Oh, for sure. For sure. No, I mean, I think it's stability within the new normal, right? That's the thing. Like, it's not stability in the sense of a return to a different time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, but it is interesting, though, if you look, I mean, I mean, I think the reason why historians say that there's a retreat is look at what is Make America Great, but a kind of psychological retreat. Well, that's a retreat for sure. You know what I mean? 1800s. I mean, but 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 it's it's all, but it can only be a psychological retreat, right? It can't be an actual return to because the new space doesn't allow for that. Sure. But I mean, so that's what I meant when I say it's a psych. I think a retreat is often um a a kind of a refusal to go forward into what is the now and to fully embrace all the things that the now involves. It's not necessarily like pack up my bags and go into the woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, I, and I guess, I guess, you know, it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me to sort of look at what the tensions are and, and, and the touch points are for us and where they dovetail. I don't know, but it's nice to see a Gen Z emerge. I feel like we've been trashing the millennials for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> Take the weight off of them. Give it to Gen Z. <laughs> but actually, I don't think Gen Z is, I, I mean, the Gen Z doesn't seem to be emerging um, as, a, as a group that's being mocked at all. For some weird reason, millennials get mocked often. I'm not sure what that's about. <laughs> I think because the, the distance that millennials travel, millennials were people who grew up with the internet. And so the people commenting on them were people who did not. And I think that's the real divide there is that we are afraid of millennials because, they're, because their ease in moving in this new environment is so apparent. Yeah, and our difficulty in moving it is also apparent, and so that's why we've demonized. This is my pet theory. That's why we've demonized m- millennials. On some level, us Gen Xers understand that the world is now forever changed, and simultaneously, as we recognize the next generation is so much better skilled at navigating it, we know that we are always going to be running up to catch up. Well, isn't that weird? I mean, isn't that in some sense what our parents would want for us? I mean, did the Go boomers on. did the boomers resent the Gen Xers for being able to navigate the world better than they did? I guess maybe. Ooh, I just asked that out loud. <laughs> Was there is there always a little bit of generational resentment? I just felt. Like I think so. I mean, yeah, you think I about think so. special. Thing. You think about the greatest generation coming out of that, and then having to deal with like, you know, beatniks and hippies, <laughs> right? And then who those, you know, like you think about, and then how those people grew up to be the adults of the eighties. And then the, it's, it's always like that. It's always a bit of a push and pull with the generation before you. 
than the one after you. But I think this particular one over the digital divide, and maybe if we look back far enough, we might have seen something like this in the industrial divide when we moved from primarily agrarian to in industry. Perhaps there was something research, but yeah, maybe there was something similar. But over the digital divide, I think that's why we've demonized millennials because we know that they can replace us. You know, oh, what is it? What is it mean that like similar? Say the There was something similar. The invention of the teenager. That's right. Because we invented about... childhood in the industrial yeah. revolution, and so that was it. You know, people hated those kids. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they actually created a whole new category. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. It's um, always been there a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. Do you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience, Jason? So I'm actually going to recommend an interview about a book, which I know is weird, but I really like this interview, and I haven't read the book yet. On Here and Now, another one of my NPR shows that I enjoy, there was an interview uh, with Judd Apatow about Gary Shandling. Uh, Judd Apatow apparently recently published Gary Shandling's journals, and, and Apatow edited them for publication. And, and Apatow was just talking about his relationship with Gary Shandling. And I don't I don't know a lot about Gary Shandling. I, I watched a couple of his things. I, I, I'm not like a big fan. But after hearing Judd Apatow talking about him, I'm actually really interested to read the book and uh, and see more of his work. But the interview itself is just really, really good. Trisha? So a couple of weeks ago, my friend and I went to see Jojo Rabbit. I had heard nothing of it. I was surprised by it. Basically, Jojo Rabbit is a sort of a black comedy that takes place in Nazi Germany. And it's actually based on a book called Caging Skies. And it's the story of a young boy who is entirely caught up in the Hitler youth. And then so he like finds the out. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> You're a mess. So, um, so look no, it so, up, people. Um, that's true. That is true. Oh, I forgot that. I forgot yeah, that I whole storyline about I him. Not. I did yeah. not. So yeah, so he's an enthusiastic Hitler youth. He has an imaginary friend who's Hitler. And then he discovers something startling about his mother. I'm not going to say it because I think when it when I found out in the movie, it was a surprise. And that it only happens like maybe 25% of the way into the movies. But I've been reading summaries of it and they've just been giving it away in the summary. I, I think It was I, in the trailer. Oh, that's weird. All right. So anyway, so then essentially he figures out that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl. Well, you didn't have to spoil it. <laughs> it's in the trailer. Look, I, yeah, I saw it. I read it or saw it. So yeah, don't. don't. Yeah, I mean, I haven't so seen it. I'm aware of that. So yeah. Anyway, the movie's just kind of stuck with me a little bit because I think it's a com it's a complicated topic and it's meant to be satire. But I was both uncomfortable with the portrayal in the in the movie, but then I was also I found myself laughing at moments too so i'm always interested when i have that uncomfortable feeling in a movie and i don't feel like the movie is bad so and so it made me remember it and so i actually would recommend that people check it out and tell me what they think i recently <laughs> fell down a dark twitter timeline hole with a critic who is vehemently opposed to this movie and doesn't understand why it is rising to the top for so many critics I'm not quite there, but I, I, I liked it. I thought there were some really interesting moments there, tender moments, and uh, I think it's well worth seeing. Um, but I would say check out Jojo Rabbit and tell me what you all think. Did it miss the mark? Or was it right on time? I'm not sure. I'm also going to recommend a movie called Parasite by the director Bong Joon-ho. It's a Korean film. There are subtitles, so you have to really be literate to watch it. 
And this movie is extremely well-reviewed. It is one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. And I will give you no details about it. So you have to just trust me and go to the theater. It is incredible. I will say uh, it's about a poor family in Korea living on the margins. And uh, very quickly, they scam. They start to scam this rich family for jobs and uh, and for money. And it starts off really funny. And then it takes a turn. And I won't say anything else about that. You have to just trust me that it's very, very worth it. So go see Parasite. See it today before you hear anything else about it. Don't read anything about it. Just walk into the theater, sit down, watch it. Trust me. So there it is. What are you doing for the rest of the day, people? Trisha, you, you, you were, we had to rush this because you're going for a walk. Yeah, I'm trying to walk more. I mean, I guess in LA, you have to try to do that. Yeah, you know <laughs> what? Let so me true. tell you. My sister and I decided to walk our neighborhood recently. Yeah. No sidewalks. Yeah, because people don't walk over there, honey. You're not supposed to be walking. <laughs> you really take it. You really take um take it for granted on the East Coast that East Coast cities are just really walkable. Yeah, for the I most mean, part. Not all of them. I was in Fort Lauderdale the other day. Oh well, if, yeah, that makes. If sense. you're not on the beach, honest to God, I don't know how people walk around. You, I mean, you're not supposed to. Like, you have to stay in your house forever. <laughs> like, just forever. There's no, there's no getting around it. So enjoy your walk, like walking on people's lawns and shit. That's good. Yes. And Jason, what are you doing? Uh, I need to go rake some leaves. Oh God, that's such a dad thing to do. I haven't done it in months and you can tell. So it's going to be a long. This is why I don't miss owning like a lawn. Yeah. Are your neighbors and... giving you looks? <laughs> you know, I don't know and I don't care, but. It it needs to be done. You know what I love when I drive through the suburbs and uh, you're passing all these lawns, and then you always pass that house where the entire lawn is dug up and it's just like bricks with like some like gnomes or something. And I'm like, you know what I love about that? That person was like, "Fuck you, community standards. I don't want to do any mowing." And I'm like, I respect the hell out of that. Good for you. I, I for you. Someday I'd love to, you know, own a house in the front yard as like a a Zen rock garden. Yeah, that's oh nothing living. I don't want anything living to have to take care of, like grass See, or children. By the way, Nobody have those. <laughs> Jesus, you know what's so strange Christ. about this conversation? This is the environmentalist we're talking to, right? <laughs> Jason wants nothing in his care that is alive. So, if you're listening, child services in DC, please visit Jason's home. So I have serious concerns about his children. That's so funny. But on that note, bye everybody. Bye. 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 <laughs>